Welcome to The Daily Cut, a podcast of Park Community Church. I'm Trevor Lovell, a pastor from our Near North location. Throughout this season, we wanted to create something consistent that would help add even a little sense of rhythm to life. So we created The Daily Cut, short biblical devotionals that we now post every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. We hope you're encouraged and challenged in your walk with Jesus. This is The Daily Cut, and I'm Trevor Lovell. All right, it's good to be with you all. I hope you've been enjoying our series through the Minor Prophets here. I know sometimes these can be difficult little books to engage with and uh, to kind of get a sense of what's actually going on in them. But the truth is, right, when you take the time to slow down and to kind of soak in what's going on here, that these are some uh, incredibly rich books and passages of Scripture. And so hopefully this series has helped make them a little bit more accessible, a little bit more clear, and I hope that you've enjoyed and benefited from them. And uh, and actually with that. Today, we're continuing that series as we look into the book of Micah. And uh, specifically, we're going to center our time on the first eight verses of chapter six of the book of Micah, uh, chapter six, verses one through eight. And uh, just a quick setup here at the top, kind of some background information. Micah was a prophet who lived in Israel Um, about the same time as the prophet Isaiah. We see that he lived in the town of Morasheth. He talks about that right in the first verse of the book, uh, which was located in the southern kingdom of Judah. At this point, uh, when Micah lived, right, there's the kingdom of Israel and, uh, you know, the first king, King Saul, then King David, then his son, King Solomon, and then after him, King Rehoboam, Solomon's son. And under Rehoboam, the kingdom split into two, the northern and the southern kingdoms. And uh, so we see that Micah lives after the time of that split uh, when there's the two kingdoms, and he lives in uh, the southern kingdom of Judah, right? And uh, and during this time, you see the way the northern kingdom comes to an end throughout their history is the Assyrian Empire actually invades and destroys them and kind of carries them off, um, scatters them um, throughout the throughout the known world at that time. And so uh, what's interesting is that if you read this whole book, you'll see references to both the Northern and the Southern kingdoms. And actually Micah even prophesies about that Assyrian invasion, which is gonna wipe out uh, the Northern kingdom and also have some pretty drastic effects on the Southern kingdom as well. And uh, sometimes you can miss it when you're reading through because you're like, well, he doesn't, it doesn't seem like he, he doesn't talk about the kingdom of, of Israel. Um, but what he does say is he mentions Samaria. And after the kingdom split, Samaria was the capital of the Northern Kingdom. And so when he mentions Samaria, he's talking about that Northern Kingdom. Um, and so that's just a little background information, not the most important thing for our passage, but that is uh, uh, just free, right? And so the book as a whole is broken up into three sections, each beginning with a call to his audience uh, to hear what he's about to say as he pronounces the word of the Lord, as he prophesies and then goes to speak on behalf of God, um, basically calling out sin uh, within these kingdoms. And it, it, each of these sections has this kind of pattern where it starts with this judgment because of the sin um, within the, the kingdom or the kingdoms. And then afterwards, there's this salvation that uh, the judgment leads to hope in each one of those cases. And so structurally, that's the way it works. The first section uh, is chapter one, verse two, all the way uh, through the rest of chapter two. So it's the first two chapters. The second section begins in chapter three uh, and goes on through chapters four and five. And then the third and final section begins in chapter six and goes on to the end of the book in chapter seven. And so the section we're looking at today specifically is the opening to that third section. 
All right, and so we're gonna jump into it now, Micah chapter six, verses one through eight, the opening of that third section. And as we work through it, uh, we're just gonna kind of take it piece by piece and break it down, explain what it's saying. So that way we can keep the flow of thought and, and follow along with it well. So let's jump in with it now. This is Micah chapter six, verse one. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. Right, so this opening is Micah speaking on behalf of God from the perspective of God. He's uh, right; he's a he's a prophet uh, speaking to the people from God, and it's like the opening of a court case here. And the Lord is bringing His case against the people of Israel, and He calls on the mountains to act as witnesses uh, in the case. And uh, and so from there, God raises a question surrounding the disobedience and the wickedness of the people of Israel. That's where He actually starts His charge. He says that they mistreat the poor, they rob each other of their land. These are other things that are mentioned throughout the book and throughout this section as well. Their prophets are paid to prophesy good news. There's no integrity, right? And and they worship other gods continually. And so God, in speaking of all this behavior, he asks here right at the beginning, is this because of something I've done? Are your faults, is your sinful nature, your sinful disobedience, is it because I haven't treated you well as your God? Right, is it because I've failed you in some way? That's the question that he asks here next in verse three. And then he goes into this list of basically all the ways that he's treated them well. Uh, and so this is, he, he moves into that here, starting in verse three. He says, oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, right? He's saying, I rescued you. I saw you in distress. I saw you under oppression and I delivered you out of that. And I gave you strong, godly leadership to lead you forward. And and so that's the initial beginning of the list. But then he keeps going. He, He goes on to say this, oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor answered him. Right, he's referencing something that took place in the book of Numbers or what the book of Numbers records. Right, while the people of Israel were wandering in the wilderness, Balak, the king of Moab, wanted to destroy them. Right, and so he paid Balaam, a prophet, to curse them from afar. But when Balaam tried to curse them, God made him bless them instead. Right, and the point of the story is God protected them at a time when the Israelites uh, weren't doing anything that was deserving of protecting. They were grumbling against God. They were complaining against him. They were uh, acting in ways that showed uh, an absence and a lack of faith. And yet still God protected them even in the midst of that. All right, so that's the third reason. And then one more is listed. And it just says this, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. And what that references is, is to is those are the places on either side of the Jordan River um, for when the people of Israel actually entered into the promised land. When they entered in, they went from Shittim to Gilgal. And as they did, God actually stopped the flow of the Jordan River miraculously so that they could cross over into the promised land. And so he rescued them from Egypt in summary of of everything that God has done for them. He rescued them from Egypt, delivered them from their slavery. He gave them good, godly leadership instead of the, you know, the, the reign of the tyrant Pharaoh. 
He protected them from their enemies in the wilderness, even while they were disobedient uh, and, and faithless and thankless. And then finally, he brought them miraculously into the promised land, to their own place of rest. He fulfilled his promise to them. Right? All of this God has done for them, and yet still, they have disobeyed. And so the point is, God is saying, like, this, this is the evidence. Your disobedience isn't because I've failed you in any way. I've done all of these things for you, and yet still, you've continued to act in disobedience. And I think a helpful thing for us at this point it can just be to consider all the things that God has done for us personally in the past, right? All the things that God has given us, all the doors he's opened, all the favor that he's shown us, everything that God has done for us. Because honestly, it's easy to forget those things and to take those things for granted. And, and what happens is when we do that, when we forget what God has done for us in the past, the ways that he's been there, it affects the way that we live for him in the present, and we can end up finding ourselves in a similar situation to the Israelites, right? Whether we're grumbling and complaining or whether we're just kind of blowing past red lights, doing things that we know aren't right, um, but we're just going to do them anyways. And I think remembering what God has done for us in the past helps us to kind of not end up in places like that. All right, but back to our passage, right? What happens next after God has finished his charge, finished bringing forward this evidence is that Micah speaks on behalf of Israel. And this is what he says, starting in verse six. He says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? He's asking, how can I make it right? I've messed up. I know it's on me, but how can I make it better? That, that's the question. How do I make things right? And he goes on to say this. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And then comes the response, which counters all of these offers and states plain and clear what God actually desires from us. Right? And this is the passage that we've been building up to. This is probably the, the most famous passage from the book of Micah. Uh, chapter six, verse eight, reads like this. He has told you, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Now, he has told you, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Right? That's what God desires. That's what he desired from them then. And it's what he desires of us now, that we would do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with him. And so I just want to take a minute and kind of break these down a little bit and uh, touch on each one of these, right? Because the, the passage names these three things, right? And the first is to do justice. What does it mean to do justice? Well, first off, it means as an individual to treat other people fairly to treat them justly, to not show favoritism or partiality, but to treat people fairly right, with justice. But even more so, I think what this is calling us to is the reality that in every society and in every age, there are always those who are mistreated. Right? There are always those who suffer injustice. And what this passage is saying is to take up the cause of those people. It's saying that God cares about injustice and he cares when someone or some people group is mistreated. And so what means more to God than making any great sacrifice is joining in the cause of bringing justice to those who have received injustice. That's what God desires of us. That's the first part. 
The second is to love kindness. And some translations put that instead uh, as to love mercy. And it's been said about mercy, right? That it's that mercy is God's kindness to us in our misery. God's mercy is his kindness to us in our misery, right? That it has something to do with forgiveness, with, with not holding our wrongs against us, but it's also more than that. It's, it's this desire to take away the misery of another person, right? That when you see someone in misery, your desire is to somehow remedy that situation and better their life, which is exactly how God has treated us. And what's interesting is when you take these first two in connection, to do justice and to love kindness or to love mercy, you can see the relationship between them. You can see the kind of the interconnectedness, right, of joining in the cause of those who suffered injustice and seeking to remedy the misery of those around you. And what's interesting is that these explain pretty well exactly how God treated the Israelites, which was just referenced back in verses three to five, when God was bringing forward evidence for the ways that he treated the people of Israel, right? They were suffering injustice in Egypt and in, in slavery under Pharaoh. They were living in misery, right? And he saw their misery. He saw the injustice they suffered under, and he did something about it. He did justice and he loved mercy and that he delivered them from Egypt, he provided them food and water and leadership in the desert. He protected them from their enemies, even while they themselves uh, were complaining and grumbling and were anything but pleasant. And then he brought them into the promised land, right? A place of their own, a place where they could be safe, a place where they could rest, a place where they could build families and communities and they could flourish. That's how God treated the Israelites. He did justice and he loved mercy on their behalf. And the beautiful thing about that is that that's how he treats us too. And that's why it's what God calls us to, because he's calling us to be like him, right? And to relate to those around us in the same way that he's related to us. And so that's why the third part of this, of Micah 6, 8 says this, to walk humbly with your God, which means to be careful and to be conscious and to be intentional about living in a way that's pleasing to God which means being intentional about doing justice and loving mercy. So that's what this verse means. That's what this passage means. And so I think it's a good question here as we close uh, to just ask this, right? That what's a step that you can take in your life to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God, right? This is sort of... Um, this verse is like a guiding vision that we should always be seeking to, to live into this more uh, and more as, as we go throughout our lives. But the question is, what's a first step that we can take uh, now? What's, what's the next step that we can take today to do this better now? And let me just encourage you, right? As we strive to live in this way more and more, we are living in a way that's pleasing and honoring to God because we're living in a way that's like him. And so keep at it because God's not asking for burnt offerings. He's not asking for thousands of rams or for tens of thousands of rivers of oil. What he wants is for us to engage in the world around us in the same way that he does. And he wants us to do it because he loves us. And so however you can, right, today, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. For that is what's good, right? And that is what God requires of us. Thanks for listening today. I hope you're doing well. We'll be back on Wednesday with another short devotional. So stay tuned.